It's a joy to know that the God does lead us. So often, uh, we're not sure what tomorrow will bring. We want to plan for it, but we don't know. I actually had a, a long talk with a couple people this, this week just about that same subject. We can trust God for tomorrow, even though we don't know what it is. Whatever our circumstances, we can trust Him. Well, this morning, I come to the last sermon in this series. I've been expanding on the Apostle Peter's warnings in 2 Peter about false teachers and false prophets. Uh, they're all around us. We need to be prepared. And as John Halpin had expressed, we now have churches that are embarrassed by the cross of Christ. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I gave the uh, invocation at um, the county legislature. And I was called and asked to do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. It fit my schedule. Then I got a letter that said it's supposed to be an interfaith prayer. I don't know what interfaith prayer is because you pray to the God that you serve. Do you pray to multiple gods? You can't do that. So I simply gave them a kind of a caveat as I'm a God, minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the person I pray to. I mean, no disrespect to you, but join in. You pray to your deity, but I'm praying to mine. And I had one, there's a couple of people I could tell very clearly because they're close. And one was scowling at me. Uh, but the one just to the left of her was excited. Yes, like she was excited. Someone's finally going to say what's politically incorrect, but completely theologically correct. In fact, that's theologically correct, no matter, regardless of your religion. We pray to the God whom we serve. But there's a lot of false religions out there. There's a lot of presentations of false gods. We've uh, talked about that. We've talked about the dangers of uh, those that arise from demonic revelations, from Eastern mysticism, uh, from man-made uh, theologies. And the danger of that, because it leaves the persons condemned by God because it's a false gospel. There is no good news on how you really can be assured that your sins are forgiven. We also took time and warned about religions based in traditions, those based in experience, those that are really marketing ploys, and uh, last week, postmodern thought. And the danger in those vary from the theology to theology. Some simply are aberrations, and they leave people spiritually confused, spiritually immature, but some will have perverted the gospel, and they will leave, just like a false religion, someone condemned in their sins because it's the wrong Christ. It's not the Christ of the Bible. It's a different Jesus, and we have to have the correct Jesus. This morning, I want to conclude this series by examining some of the foolishness that arises from the various secular philosophies. It would include rationalism, secularism, and liberalism. Um, all of them rely on a simple idea. Man is smarter than God. That's their, their foundation. Man is smarter than God. Therefore, here's what we think is true. Flip over to Psalm 14. Uh, John didn't read it earlier, but I'm going to read it now. So that was fine to use Psalm 1. But Psalm 14, uh, the importance of this psalm is actually shown in its um, repetition. It occurs also in Psalm 53, at least the first part of it. And then uh, in Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the apostle repeats the first three verses there. So it's a rep repetitive kind of psalm. It's an important one. But here's what David wrote. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does, does good not even one. 
Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob, will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Now, that is the biblical definition of a fool. It's someone who says or acts as if there is no God. There are those who are proud and arrogant in their atheism, uh, current leaders in the new atheism, or people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris. I sure wish he would change his last name. Fortunately, he is no kin of mine. I have some redneck kin, but none of my kin are quite as foolish as this man. Um, they're very vocal in their war against God. In fact, they believe that God is dangerous. Theism is dangerous, and especially the God of the Bible. And therefore, atheism is the only answer. And so they're evangelistic, in a sense, about atheism. There are also those who believe that there is no God, but they're not willing to vocalize it. Uh, they realize society generally doesn't care for that, therefore they're not going to say anything, but they still believe it. Um, then there is everybody else. We might say that there is a God, but when we really examine our lives, do we live as if there is a God? Practical atheism. We can claim things, but the reality is, how do we live it? And that's why Paul will quote this these first three verses from Psalm 14, as he sums up the state of man in Romans 3. When you get all through it, all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. No one meets the standard. There are times we act as if there is no God. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, period. As if there's no God that we're going to be held accountable to. And so there's a sense all of us at points are practical atheists. We have turned away from God and we fall short of his glory. Now, before I go on, I want to talk about the foolishness of atheism and the philosophies that flow from it. I want to stress this idea that no man is saved from their sin, either by their own work or even by their own desire to pursue after God. Again, as the text states, there is none that do good, there is none that understand, there is none that seek after God. All have turned aside, all have become corrupt. We don't like that. We want to say we're an exception. Where you're not an exception. Or I saw one paraphrase that said, there's none that do good, and then it said, it's not even you. We want to make it personal. We don't do it. We all know our failings. We all know we don't meet God's standards. We know where we've sinned. We have the guilt to prove it. But this is important when we're dealing with false philosophies, with cults, with other religions, with other ideas, because it moves salvation back into the spiritual realm where it belongs. Salvation is something that happens because of God's work. We do not present the gospel as just another competing idea in the marketplace of man's ideas. That's not what it is. And yes, it's important. We want to present reasoned arguments to those who do not believe, but you cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. It cannot be done. 1 Corinthians 2.12 states it this way, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And that's why even as John's testimony says, you know, he thought this way and he didn't get it. 
they're spiritually appraised. The Spirit of God has to work on a person. And so they don't understand. And you've had that experience yourself when you're witnessing someone. You know, the eyes are open, but nobody's home. You know, it's, it's not getting through because it's a spiritual thing. You cannot entice someone into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ either. That's often used. That's marketing ploy. Why? Because man loves his sin and would judge it stupid to give up what he loves to follow Jesus Christ in self-sacrifice. They're not going to do it. That's why the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, 16 through 20, he was grieved. He turned away because his heart was bent on his riches. He was the illustration of what Jesus had said about in Matthew 5, 19, that a man's heart is where his treasure is. And you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. And that rich young man wanted to know about eternal life, wanted to have it, wanted to be secure in it, but he was not willing to give up earthly treasures to receive the heavenly treasures. So you can't entice someone either. You also cannot frighten someone into salvation. Now, certainly we must warn people of the condemnation that God has for sin, and that will cause fear, but unless that is a fear of the Lord and not a fear of hell, what people will do is they will either develop themselves or they'll find a system by which they can ensure themselves that they have gained it for themselves. Why? Well, it's not difficult. Why would you want to entrust your eternal destiny to the same God that currently you're under his condemnation? I would rather find some means which is, I have secured it, it is mine, and he must give it to me. And so man finds some means of works righteousness. I've secured it for myself. And so you really can't frighten someone into it. But all it can do is maybe wake them up and start thinking, how am I going to be right with God? John 1, and this is an important passage, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, that is Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's often memorized. I think it's one of the Iwana verses. But verse 13 is extremely important for us. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you cannot be saved from your sins and become a genuine seeker of God unless God does something first. You can't inherit salvation. It's not by your genealogy. It's not by your bloodline. It's not because you want it, and it's not because someone else wants it for you. It is God at work. It is in the realm of the spiritual. And so the only one that can save you from sin is God, and he does. He's patient. He's long-suffering, and so he does not place upon us quickly what our sins deserve, which is eternal punishment. If he did that, nobody would be here. We'd all be in hell together. But he is long-suffering. He's patient. He's enduring, amazingly enduring. And then by his grace, he starts drawing people to himself, to Christ, John six forty four. No man comes unto Christ unless the Father draws him. And the Father does that. He sends his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. It's one of the ways you know that God is working, when a person is convicted of their sin. Not just feeling guilty, but they know, I have sinned against the Holy God. You know God is at work, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
In addition, the Holy Spirit then will regenerate and renew the person that they can repent. Titus 3, 5, and have faith in Christ, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us. It's by grace you're saved, not of works. Why? Works can't save you. Instead, it's through faith. He imputes to you, he gives to you the righteousness of Christ simply because you believe, just as it happened with Abraham. So that's why prayer is so critical in evangelism. We can go out, we can argue, we can talk, we can talk until we're blue in the face, but it has to be the Spirit of God going before us. And so prayer is critical. Yes, learn to proclaim the gospel. Learn how to answer people's arguments. But even more importantly, we need to pray that God will have mercy on their souls, convict them of their sin, grant them repentance, and draw them to Christ. That's what we need to do. Okay? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is divine revelation. We must not allow it to appear as simply another man-made philosophy. It is not so. Now, let's go back and talk about Psalm 14 and the atheist. Okay? Here it says he's a fool. Why is he a fool? Scripture is very clear about it. And when a person is an atheist, and they're also proud and arrogant, such as Hitchens and those other fellows, then several scriptures give strong warning that there's not much hope for them. Why? Let me give you a couple. Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise it. Proverbs 1.22 adds this, How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity, and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Have you ever watched one of these debates with one of these guys? They're scoffers. They hate the knowledge. Proverbs 12.15 adds, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You can't tell him anything. How can you help a person who's already made up their minds and they don't want to be confused by the facts? All right? That is the heart of arrogance. That's the proud atheists. That's Dawkins. That's Hitchens. They believe that they themselves are their final arbitrators of truth. That's their position. Now, there's a huge difference between someone stating, I've examined a lot of evidence, and in that evidence, I have not seen that God exists. From saying is, God does not exist. Do you see the difference between the two? One is willing to admit I'm limited. The other one says, I'm absolute. Now, a person making a claim that God does not exist would have to have omniscience. He'd have to have all knowledge in order to exclude the possibility that God is someplace he hasn't looked yet. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's a lot of animals that we can now look up in any zoological book that prior to the 19th and 20th centuries were tales, wild stories from quote-unquote primitive people. And there was a bias in European science Basically, it was this. If a European scientist has not seen this thing and cataloged it, it doesn't exist. Pretty arrogant, but that was the mindset. And so you had, we call them cryptozoological animals, hidden animals. Here's one that uh, wasn't discovered until 1901. This is a okapi. Something, an odd-looking creature, right? Sort of looks like a cross between a horse a zebra, and a giraffe with a short neck because it does have some horns there on it. You can see that um, that's a horn, or like a giraffe. It's got those knob things. It's an odd-looking animal. And uh, a fellow named uh, Sir Harry Johnston, 
He'd heard stories about this creature as a child, and in 1901, he was given a skin of one. He sent it back to the British Museum, where the quote-unquote new animal was named Okapi Johnstoni. So you always get to have your name added to these things, so that's why people like to find new animals. A live one was caught in 1903, and they become prize zoo exhibits. Well, there's a whole field of study as they, people search for these things. They hear stories, they're going to say, well, I wonder what the thing exists. The animals were there the whole time, weren't they? Okay? That the scientists did not know about it doesn't mean it not, does not exist. And that's the same thing when it comes to these boastful atheists. Just because the atheist has not discovered God is not proof that God does not exist. The truth is that the atheist demands that God prove his existence according to the manner acceptable to the atheist. All of creation, his revelation of himself through his prophets, his intervention in human history, those are not enough to satisfy such atheists. And so just as in the conclusion of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that's where Jesus said if they do not listen to the to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to someone who's raised from the dead. So these atheists reject everything except their own ideas. And that includes the testimony of Jesus Christ, who did rise from the dead. They simply reject it, and therefore it must not be true. Now the case of these types of atheists is even worse. For even from a purely rationalistic standpoint, God may well exist where this atheist has not looked. So if they were honest... They would have to acknowledge that they're agnostic, i.e., they do not know. I have an unknown here about God, but don't hold your breath waiting for them to be honest, because they're not. I have in uh, the sermon notes there some books, if you're interested in studying more. A lot of people have been writing about this, especially with uh, these new atheists making such a, a mark on society. They're being very aggressive, but they're, they're easily dealt with, and so there's some resources for you. Well, what about this idea then of people who are not as arrogant as Dawkins or Hitchens, and so they'll refer to themselves as agnostic. They do not believe there's a God, but since they cannot prove he doesn't exist, they'll just say, as well, I don't know. I don't know if he exists. But there are several types of agnostics. Now, first, there are those who are relatively humble, and uh, they simply have not given much consideration to it. I don't know if he exists or not. I never really, really thought about it. Haven't done much with that. Okay, they really haven't, don't have enough uh, information to form an opinion. That's a humble person. There are also those who have given it some thought, but they're skeptical of the information given to them. Now, both of these types of agnostics, there is some hope, because if you can give them the right information, maybe they will consider it. But they don't know one way or the other, so they're not going to claim anything. But there is a problem that they have, and it's not a lack of information. Remember what we saw back in Psalm 14, it's in Romans 3, there's none who seek after God. The problem is not a lack of information. The problem is not a lack of intelligence. The problem is a lack of, I don't really want to see if he's there, because that's a scary thought. Because if he's there, then I'm accountable to him. If I'm accountable to him, my life doesn't match what he probably wants, and I have to change, and I don't want to change, so I'll simply ignore him. So an ostrich puts his head in the sand, or the child that refuses to acknowledge that you're right behind them while they're still doing their thing that's going to get them in trouble, they think they can just hide. It doesn't work. It's a spiritual problem. Again, not a lack of information, a lack of desire to actually search for God. Or as I heard it once say, the agnostic does not search for God the same way that 
that a thief does not search for the policeman. That's a good way to put it, isn't it? There's a third type of agnostic, though, and this one rivals the arrogant atheist. Now, they may be intellectually honest enough to say it's okay. I don't know. I can admit that. And so the atheist's position is untenable. But they will insist that not only do they not know, you cannot know either. That's pretty arrogant. They simply insist that, though. And it comes back to the same foundational error as the arrogant atheist. And if there's a system of epistemology, that is, there's a system of how you know things. And their claim is that only their system of knowing things is valid. And so that must be applied to all people. In other words, because they cannot know things to their own satisfaction, they insist that no one else can either. Now that's roughly equivalent to saying something like this. I am limited. I cannot fly up to the moon and get to the backside of it and see what it's like and experience it. Therefore, you also are limited and cannot do the same. But we live in the space age. We have a reality. There are those who are not so limited. They develop both manned and unmanned vehicles to get something there, or they themselves, to study it and go, guess what? We know something now about the backside of the moon. To put it a little more bluntly, maybe I could put it this way. If only a particular system of knowing is allowable, the knowledge beyond that system cannot be attained. That's the agnostic position. However, I do not have to limit myself to someone else's system and remain ignorant like them. Is that fair? Now, ultimately, the agnostic is ignorant because they choose to do so. And you have no obligation to live your life by their rules. In fact, you have an obligation not to live by their rules. Over in Acts 17, Paul is going to present the gospel to the philosophers at the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens. And in chapter, or verse 22, he starts to give his address, and he brings up the issue of an unknown God that they were worshiping. They had a statue there, the unknown God, and he is going to explain to them. And he talks about their ignorance. But here's what he says as he ends the sermon in view of that. In verse 30, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Man is not to remain ignorant. Man is to repent. And so the issue of man's ability to know is a false one. Man can know, but will he seek? There are some good books that have dealt with this. Francis Schaeffer's He is There and Is Not Silent is a good one. So is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Those are things we're finding more and more around us as we're interacting in the world. But there's some things that underlie this that, underlying this that go back a little farther. Let me talk about empiricism. Now, there are several divergent lines within this, but essentially empiricism has this premise. All ideas are derived from experience. That's the empirical foundation. All ideas are derived from experience. David Hume, in his Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, would be a prime example of this philosophy. He asserted that while the relationship between ideas can be known, their actual reality cannot be established beyond a probability. 
And because any experience derives meaning from the perception of that experience, you end up with is the individual interpretation of an experience gives meaning to life or meaning to the experience. Now, the application of empirical thought to religion has resulted in two divergent problems. First, it subjected theology to a scientism, and it has forced divine revelation to be interpreted by natural science, by the scientific method. But it ignores a reality. Theology deals with metaphysical realities, things that are spiritual, things that are beyond the physical, that will affect the physical world. Okay? Scientism, the scientific method, can only work on physical realities. It can't say anything about what's not physical, and yet it's trying to do exactly that. And so it ends up, it subjects theology to this, and, it ha- and then theology has to be interpreted by current theories of science. They're two different things. To put it more bluntly, the biblical revelation of God and his actions then cannot be trusted and must instead be explained and interpreted to fit the speculations of man. That's where it is gone, and we've seen this. It puts God in this position, either a liar or he's simply inept. He cannot communicate. And there are no miracles. But what do we find what Scripture says? Who's the liar, God or man? It's man. Psalm 116, 11, Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie to the son of man that he should change his mind. He does what he says. Hebrews 6, 18 says the same thing. Who's a liar? It's not God. It's man's experience often lies to us. That's why we like those tracks with the um, uh, illusions on it, the, uh, uh, what do they call them? Optical illusions, all right? It looks like one thing, but it could also look like something else. Something is, looks bigger than it is because of the background and all that. Our experiences or interpretations can be very, very wrong. Second problem generated by empiricism is that it subjected theology uh, to this whole paradigm of interpretation according to the perceptions of the individual, their experience. Friedrich Schleiermacher was very influential in development of this idea and resulted in the idea that declared truth of Scripture is secondary to the individual's experience of interpretation of, of those experiences. And that quickly results in what I think and what I feel is more important than what God has said. And we talked about this some weeks ago with theologies are developed upon experience. It rises out of this idea of empiricism. It has had a negative effect even in conservative evangelical Christianity in which the word of God is supposed to reign supreme. But too often we keep running into people, my experience is more important than what God has said in his word. So I don't want to know what's in here. I have enough experience. But here's what God says about man and his ability to understand his own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. That's not too encouraging to trust your experience, is it? Your own method of thinking. Proverbs 28, 26 warns this. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who walks wisely will be delivered. We don't want to trust in our own perceptions. We want to trust something that's beyond our perceptions that's going to be absolute, and that's God and his word. Another philosophical idea that has run all sorts of places is rationalism. It attacks biblical divine revelation as the source of truth, and replaces it with its own idea. And rationalism is basically this idea. 
Reality is rational in nature, and knowledge derives from proper deductions. So if you have the proper deductions, you can discover everything. That's its basic idea. Now, some forms of rationalism uh, actually have been beneficial. For example, uh, Descartes used a deductive reason to argue such things as that he existed and that God existed and that this God is infinite and perfect and knowable. And many of those philosophical arguments are still used to battle atheists and agnostics. But rationalism also has a negative side. Uh, in fact, it can be very negative. Why? Because rationalism is limited. Not all things can be known by deductive reasoning. For example, even within rationalism itself, there are several different um, lines of rationalism. But within them, they disagree with each other, even though all of it's supposed to be based on deductive reasoning. Descartes' dualism is in contrast to Spinoza's monism and Leibniz's uh, monadology. They conflict with each other, and yet they're all supposed to be derived from the same thing. So obviously there's a limit to rationalism. The application of rationalism to theology laid a foundation for the theories of higher criticism which attacked the authorship, veracity, and clarity of the scriptures. It was also used by the deists to dismiss miracles and filled prophecy as evidence for special revelation. So here's the foundational error. It is placing human reason as superior to divine revelation. That in turn required the Bible to be interpreted according to human reason. In effect, that means man places his own finite abilities, which includes his limited ability to reason, because it is limited, upon a God who is infinite in all of his attributes. God is not against human reason. That's why there's aspects of rationalism that make sense, that are useful. In uh, Isaiah 1.18, what was God's call? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to think rationally. But at the same time, you cannot compare your ability with his. Over in um, Isaiah 55... We have a contrast that the Lord gives. Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 8, I believe it is. Don't you hate it when the pages of your Bible stick together? Uh, verse 6, Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will be abundantly pardoned. And here's the contrast. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. No wonder Paul could say that in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1 about God makes foolish the wisdom of the wise. Because it's different. The rationalism of man cannot explain the ways, works, or word of God who is infinite. Now, these things have come together in what we might call theological liberalism. A lot of divergent ideas, and this is more of a term that's a catchphrase for very divergent philosophies, but they're tied together by one quest, and that is to adapt theology to culture. Whatever culture is, our understanding of God must adapt to it. That's their premise. And a major theological shift took root in the late 1800s. We called it modernism. 
And by the 1920s and 30s, it had fractured the mainline denominations as great theological battles took place. Uh, for the most part, liberal theologians had positioned themselves in the place of power in the denominations, so they continued to control it. But a large percentage of those who were part of them did not want to sit there and listen to the musings of men. They wanted the word of God, and so they left. And there were a lot of new denominations that formed in the 1920s and 30s and church associations, including the one we belong to, the IFCA International, formed in 1930, right out of this uh, theological battle. The underlying premise of liberalism was was that the changes in the world at large required the church to change and adapt to it. One of those things that had come to the forefront in the late 1800s was the ideas of Darwinian evolution. And that got applied to history and then to the ideas of theological development. And so it became accepted by the theological liberals that theology was developed over time by man, continually improved theological ideas, rather than God revealing himself over time to man in the scriptures. Two very different ideas. Another thing that came to be with it was this idea that God himself was present and dwelling among us in an almost pantheistic way. In fact, some groups went pantheistic. But this idea, they called it divine eminence, eminence. With it came a diminishing of Scripture's importance because if God is dwelling in everything, then everything can give me revelation of God, equal to or even superior to his special revelation in his word. And so the importance of Scripture was diminished. At the same time, the ideas from rationalism and empiricism were attacking the veracity of Scripture, resulting in a rejection by the liberals of the Bible as the source of divine authority. Higher criticism of the Bible, the idea of divine eminence, these other things, they all end up as there's other things equal or superior to what God has said. Now here it is a century later, and liberalism is still quite alive, very influential, but it is factioned and it's morphed in many, many, many different directions. The human optimism, for example, that society was moving toward the realization of the kingdom of God in an ethical state of human perfection, that was very strong in the beginning of the 20th century. World War I and World War II just about nailed the coffin shut on that. But it still morphs. It's still around. There still are those who think that somehow we humans are going to achieve a perfect society. If only we'll do this, if we only do that, if only put so-and-so in charge, they're such a good person, they'll, they'll clear up all our, our troubles and take care of us. Well, it's not true. Man is sinful. He's not going to do that. We need to be looking for Christ. Others have taken in by empiricism their practice of religion based on scientific methods and experience, and we've talked about some of that in the past. That's where they've gone. They reject anything miraculous, and they end up with a God who's a lesser God, small g God sort of a divine entity they can plug in when they want him. There's others who have continued in the quest of liberalism to demythologize Jesus in the scriptures, and so they continue this idea of our tradition of intellectualism, sentimentality, and accommodation with the world, and a lesser God as well. There's a lot of the mainline churches that are still teaching that, and you go in there and you're like, what kind of God do you got? doesn't sound like he can do a whole lot, 
and they do lots of nice things, but there's no relationship with the real God. And then there's another group that we would call neoliberal, new liberals. They recognize they want a more transcendent God, a God who's more powerful than them, a God who can actually do something about their sin. But they still don't want the God of the Bible, so they change things around. And they still adapt it to the modern culture. And that's why the emergent church we talked about uh, two weeks ago is, in a real sense, simply the next phase of liberalism, because it fits right here. Now, the damage of theological liberalism has been great, both in Europe and the United States. Churches that once were vibrant, local churches, they're now restaurants, they're pubs, they're exercise centers, they're theaters. There's quite a few that are now Hindu temples and Islamic mosques. They once were vibrant churches proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Denominations that once influenced societies for righteousness become worldly, even to advocating that what God abhors and says is an abomination, they say are just and right and to be advocated in society, including abortion, fornication, adultery, and homosexuality. Well, what's the root error in all of it? It is an abandonment of the word of God for the theories, the thoughts, and the speculations of men. Because that's what philosophy is, isn't it? The theories, thoughts, and speculations of men. That's philosophy. The truth is abandoned and man is enslaved by the errors of his own ways. Again, as Proverbs 14, 12 warned, there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Looks good, but it's not taking where you think you want to go. They've entered through the broad gate. They're on the broad path. It's leading to destruction. All the while, they think they're doing just great. That's what Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And so they build their houses on the sand because they no longer will believe or listen to the engineer, the architect that tells them how to build it and where to build it. Storms of life come, and the end, their house collapses, Matthew 7, 24 and 27. Now, the good thing is, is we have a hope that's beyond all that, don't we? We have a hope. And understand that when you see the word hope in the Bible, it isn't, I wish. Hope means confident assurance. I have a confident assurance because it's founded in the solid rock of God's revelation of himself in his word. David extolled the word of God in Psalm 119. In Psalm 19, he described it. It is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. It is able to restore the soul. It can make wise the simple. It can rejoice the heart and line the eyes, and it will endure forever because by it the righteous, because it is righteous altogether. Jesus himself proclaimed it to be true, didn't he? John 17, 17. Why? Because its origin is not in man. It's in God. God is the one himself who inspired it. It is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. As men were moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke what God directed them, 2 Peter 1.19 and 21. Now, for some people, though, God is distant. Seems very far away. But he doesn't have to be, does he? God describes himself as both near and far, always close if we will seek him. In Jeremiah 23, he said, I am a God, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Psalm 139 has the same kind of analogy, doesn't it? Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? I can't hide from you. You're both near and you're far, and there's nowhere I can go that you are not present. And so if he does not seem close, who's the one who moved? 
not God. He is there. You're the one who's keeping the distance. So what are we to do? Well, James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a neat promise, isn't it? Hebrews eleven six 6 calls a man to come to God in faith. Why? Because without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. And he will reward you. He gives an invitation, Jeremiah 29, 13, and though it is specific to the nation of Israel, the principle applies in these other verses, and so it still applies. If you will seek him, you will be successful in finding him when you do so with all your heart. But that brings us back to that practical manner, doesn't it? Does any man seek God on his own? That's that practical atheism I started talking about at the beginning of the sermon. Man does not seek God on his own, though God gives the invitation to do so. Well, what then? Fortunately, James 4.8 goes on. It doesn't just say, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It says something about, well, how are you going to do that? So here's what it says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The key is humility. But what was lacking in all these philosophies? Humility. I am smarter than God. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word poor is a strong term, and it means destitute. I come to God with nothing to offer, nothing to bargain with. I can only come and plead for him for his mercy. That's humility. And as I mourn over my sin, he grants that mercy so that I might repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's our God. We're told in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility is a key. Jesus described it this way in John 3. Let me turn over there. Starting in verse 14, he's talking to Nicodemus, explaining what it means to be born again, how you can be right with God. Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through him. That's very positive, isn't it? That's an invitation that tells you what faith is and how to come to him. That's a sure hope. And there's a confidence. Jesus keeps his promises because he cannot lie, and his resurrection proves he has the power to keep his promises. There's his offer. There's what he asks. You need to believe. Humble yourself and believe. But he didn't end his conversation with Nicodemus there. He went on. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having wrought in God. Now, that's an interesting way to end it. They're wrought in God. The simple pursuit that you're doing that demonstrate God already at work in you. Keep pursuing it. Be humble before him. He will work in your life. That's his promise. That's his faithfulness. There's a lot of philosophical foolishness in our world. And God offers to redeem all those who will believe. But if you do not believe, you are remaining under his condemnation. That's not good. That's not where we want to remain. If you are not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, you can be. You can be saved today. In fact, I'd implore you, do not leave today without talking myself, talking to somebody about getting right with God. At the same time, if you are saved, then there's a simple response too, isn't there? Rejoice in what he's done for you. Give praise, honor, and glory to him for all he has done. Do not allow yourself to be conformed to the image of this world and live according to the philosophical foolishness that's all around us. Live for him, and then this week, tell somebody about it. Tell him, them what he has done for you, that they too might have the joy of walking with the Spirit of God in the knowledge of Jesus Christ with an absolute confidence of what the future holds. We're going to sing...